This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Timothy Fox on how we might think theologically about Bitcoin. Reverend Timothy Fox is the pastor of Christ the King Presbyterian in Austin, Texas. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Fox shares on thinking theologically about Bitcoin. Uh, My name is Tim Fox. I'm the pastor of Christ the King Presbyterian in Austin, Texas. I have found myself in this very strange little missions field of Bitcoin people. Uh, There's a lot of them in Austin, and so I submitted this proposal for this seminar kind of as a joke, like an hour before the deadline. (laughs) Just like late at night, on Friday night at Presbyterian, I was like, I'm going to propose Bitcoin. And I thought there was no way they were going to go for it, and they said, oh yeah, that sounds really good. Come talk to about Bitcoin. It's like, okay, I guess I'm going to GA. So here I am. Um, Glad you guys are here. Uh, I'm fortunate and disappointed to see how many people in our denomination are interested in fake drug dealer money. You'll be hearing from your presbyteries. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I am, like I said in the title, it's a talk about Bitcoin. I'm not talking about other cryptocurrencies, um, partially because I think Bitcoin is so unique. Uh, I think it's something totally different than a lot of them. Also because, and some of you will hate me for this, I also think most of them are Ponzi schemes and you should stay away from them. Uh, but we can talk about that later. So I'm just going to talk about Bitcoin. I'm going to just leave everything else aside for now. Um, When you start talking about something like Bitcoin, you are not far away from very serious but often uh, unconscious and assumed questions and answers about what money is. Uh, This is an incredibly important question philosophically and theologically and culturally and socially. The Bible does not ever try to tell us what money is. It just assumes it. It just starts talking about it. Um, But it's actually really important uh, for understanding what any of this stuff is and why we should care about it and why Christians should care about it. Money is a piece of technology. It's an invention. It's been invented all over the world by lots of different cultures. It's basically, when you boil it down, what it is, is a tool people have invented in order to be able to compare things. Something that I have, but something that I don't have, but I want it. Especially if you don't have that thing that I want. What do we do if I'm a chicken farmer and you're a goat farmer but I want bread. How do we figure out what to do about getting bread when you don't have it to give it to me? So money is something people have invented to be able to compare things. Um, It is typically in a society, it's the thing that people, uh, we call this being saleable. It means it's something that people can 
dispose of easily and quickly. It's the most saleable commodity, the most saleable transferable object. Your house is not very saleable because it's very hard to sell it. It takes a long time. You can't split it up. It doesn't work well as money. Cultures and civilizations tend to converge on one kind of money for the sake of getting along with each other and agreeing with each other. Uh, money is so important to our lives. It touches almost everything about our lives because it is very, it's not very far away from us just interacting with each other and carrying out our callings and our lives that God's placed on us. So in the Bible, when the Bible talks about money, it's all over the place. And it's also, of course, people get suspicious of me talking about Bitcoin because the Bible has a lot of warnings about money. Uh, the reason I think the Bible warns us so much about money and how dangerous it is is because it's so important. It's so pervasive because it's so tied to the future. A lot of what you're doing with money when you're making comparisons, you're trying to figure out what is this in relation to that and that and that and that. You're often doing it in light of the future because we don't know what the future is. And so people save money. They, get, they come up with things and they use them as money because they don't know what the future is going to hold. And of course, the greatest uncertainty of all is death. And so money, I think the reason the Bible warns about it, why it talks about it all the time, is because it's so important, it's so tied to the future, and because of those things, it so easily substitutes for God. We so easily think, oh, this thing is going to save me. This thing will protect my future. It will secure my future. It will save me from death. And so, yes, the Bible does warn us about it. Uh, I'm not worshiping Bitcoin. You shouldn't worship Bitcoin. We shouldn't worship dollars. We ought to be careful. But it's really important. Uh, you can't function for hardly any time at all with anybody without some form of money. Uh, one of these other questions, besides asking what's, what is money, where did it come from, is also why do people want certain kinds of money but not other kinds of money? What makes money good? Uh, here's a bunch of questions that we can ask and, and think about with different kinds of money. Uh, does it last or is it going to you know, fade away and corrode really quickly? Is it something you can move around very easily uh, in your pocket preferably, uh, on your phone maybe? Uh, is it this word fungible means can you take one of them and, and switch it around for another one of them? Are they all kind of the same thing? Uh, is it verifiable? Can you test it? Can you see if this is the real deal or not? If, or if somebody's faking me or, or lying to me about it? Is it something that I can divide? Can I split it into little pieces? Uh, this is one of the most important ones, maybe the most important one. Is it scarce? Is it hard to make more of it? Is it hard to find? Is it hard to get it? Uh, another one, established history. Is this something that lots of people value, lots of people use? That's another huge question that we can talk about later. Why do things have value? This is a big objection with Bitcoin. People say, well, there's nothing to it. Why, why is this, how could this possibly be valuable? Uh, let's leave that aside for now, but an important attribute of money is do other people care about this, and have they done so for a long time? And then finally, is it censorship resistant? Uh, can people just take it from me when they want to, or can they stop me from using it? Uh, here's a little chart, uh, kind of a diagram of the history of money. Uh, there are and there have been all kinds of primitive forms of money. People have used all kinds of things as money. They've used goats and salt and beads and big giant rocks sitting on a hill. Uh, people have also eventually started using what we call precious metals, silver and gold mainly, because they don't corrode very easily and they're really hard to get. They're hard to find. Eventually, what happened, you can see it in the middle, is because something, especially like gold, is hard to move around, it's expensive to move around, uh, they start putting it certain places, and they say, hold on to this for me. That doesn't always, what we think of as banks, uh, this would happen sometimes, like in different parts of the world, in temples. They would say, hold on to my money for me, my gold. And so eventually what starts happening is when you start entrusting certain groups of people or certain institutions with your gold, uh, eventually what they start doing is they say, well, 
we know that not everybody is going to run and want their gold at the same time. And so they start writing out receipts for them. And they say, hey, yeah, here you have you know, five pieces of gold here in our temple. Take this. This is your proof that you have it. And eventually, those pieces of paper also start functioning as money. If everyone trusts that you, I have what they say I have, and the people that are there are not shaving some off the top. Um, eventually, what you get out of that um, is you have governments. And, and governments have, at different times throughout the history of the world, um, taken over money, issuing money, controlling money. Sometimes they haven't. Sometimes they have. This isn't just a recent thing, uh, although this is certainly the case everywhere in the world today. Um, but eventually, governments take over this, um, these pieces of paper that are backed by a precious metal, backed by gold. The US dollar, for a long time, was backed by gold. Really, what a dollar was is it was really a certain weight of gold. If I took this piece of paper and I went to a bank, they would have to give me a certain amount of gold for every dollar that I had. Eventually, what you get into, uh, and this starts about 100 years ago, um, and it really kind of crystallizes in the early 70s. I wasn't alive in the early 70s, but some of you were. Uh, eventually, what happens is the government says, there's going to be no more gold behind our money. Uh, there's nothing behind it anymore. It's just, you just have to trust us. And it's just what we say it is. And if you don't do what we want you to do with it, if you, don't, uh, if you aren't willing to use it, you aren't willing to pay us in taxes, we will come and shoot you. Uh, Paul Krugman, he's a famous economist, he said, well, really, at the end of the day, fiat money is backed by men with guns. That's what's behind it. And so this is what we now call fiat currency. Uh, the first word of the Bible in Latin, in the Vulgate, is fiat. God says, let there be light. So it's government saying, just not totally out of thin air, but sort of. They say, this is now money. There's nothing anymore behind it. No more uh, metal, no more something that people find valuable. It's valuable because we say it's valuable. Um, with that, it's quickly become digital. Um, and so we have our, our financial system. People get weird about Bitcoin being digital. And they say, what is this? It's a computer thing. It's confusing. I don't understand it all. Almost our entire financial lives are living digitally now. Um, very few of the dollars that exist are actually paper dollars. Almost all dollars are digital entries on banks' uh, ledgers. Uh, and then now, I think, maybe some of you, I think Bitcoin is a significant, very important development in the history of monetary technology. I think Christians should care about it and churches should care about it. Um, but anyways, what is Bitcoin? This is hard to explain. I'm going to try to keep it really simple. Bitcoin is a global monetary digital network of computers that is issuing a fixed, predictable supply of units. It's global, it's monetary, it's functioning like money. It's digital, it's a computer network. It's issuing a fixed supply of units. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. Uh, and here's the one thing that's really, really important about Bitcoin. Nobody's in charge of it. There's nobody, there's no CEO of Bitcoin, there's no Bitcoin company. Uh, in that way, it's like gold. There's no one in charge of gold. Gold is just a thing that's out in the world. Uh, and so we call this being decentralized. There's no central computer. There's no central server. It's spread out all over the world. Um, this network of computers, playing by the same set of rules, has money at the heart of it that it's getting paid out. That money that's getting paid out. So you have Bitcoin, the network, but you also have Bitcoin, the money that's being issued within the network. That money inside of the computer network is what incentivizes everybody on the network to play by the rules and not cheat on each other because they want to get the money. It's a lot easier and cheaper to play by the rules to get the money than it is to try to cheat and steal from one another. You have three basic pieces to what Bitcoin is. You can see it on the triangle up there. You have these things called keys. Uh, and so what that is is basically it's kind of like a password. 
you can update the record of Bitcoin. You can, we call this the ledger. You can update the record if you have a, a, a private key that only you know, unless you share it to somebody, get with somebody, or you give it away on accident. Only you know this key. Nobody else knows it. No one else can figure out what it is. It's impossible to guess. Uh, and so you can take that and you can apply that to a certain transaction. You say, I want to move from A to B. You apply your key to that. And then that goes out to the whole network and it says, okay, I now have permission to move this around. And they can check to see that I'm not trying to cheat. So uh, you, what these keys, the, these keys show up in a couple ways in the Bitcoin world. Uh, but it's something that is really hard to guess from the front end. It's really hard to just kind of try to figure it out. But once you've done it, once you've applied it, it's really easy for everybody else to see, oh, yeah, he did that. It's, 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 you can verify it with no cost. It's very easy to do so. In some ways, it's kind of like um, if you're reading through a mystery story and it has all these details, and you're saying, what is this about? I don't know how this happened. How did this guy get murdered? And then you get to the end, and you say, oh, okay, yeah, that's really easy. I can see what happened. Uh, it, it is really hard from one end, but it's really easy from the other end. There's a couple ways that shows up in Bitcoin. So that's one piece. That's the keys, your private password that shows I can spend this. I can move the stuff that's located here and here. You also have these computers called nodes. Uh, these are simple, relatively cheap, and small computers uh, that are each containing their own record of everything that's ever happened in the Bitcoin world. So this is what we call the blockchain or the ledger. Uh, the Bitcoin system itself is quite simple. It's easy to store. You can spend a couple hundred bucks and have one of these computers running and keep your own copy. So you have tens of thousands of these computers around the world that each have their own copy. And each one of those little computers is recording new things that happened. And they're also validating things that happened. They're, they're checking to make sure, are you playing by the rules? They're doing it automatically. And this, they update each other every 10 minutes. All over the world, every 10 minutes, they all get on the same page with each other. They all agree with each other. So when I want to spend some of my Bitcoin, I use my private key. I, I go to the nodes, and I say, dear nodes, I would like to spend this money. And I tell them, and they check. They make sure that I'm not cheating and I'm not lying with my key. And if they can see that, what they do is they then send my transaction to another kind of computer that's called a miner. So this is the third piece of it. Uh, the, the miners are a different kind of computer. These computers, all they do all day long is they sit around guessing numbers. They work really, really, really hard, and they're trying to get very close to one random number. Whatever one of these computers gets right as close as it needs to be to this random number wins. They get to discover the next piece of the record, and we call that the next block. So these computers have to do a ton of work. Uh, it takes a lot of electricity, and the more of them that are competing against each other, the harder it gets, and the more electricity you have to spend to do this. But Bitcoin will adjust itself every couple of weeks to get more or less difficult to guess this number based on how many people are trying to find it. So it'd be like gold. If uh, lots of people went out to find gold, uh, and the gold knew you were coming, and it said, oh, they're all coming. I'm going to go deeper into the ground. Uh, or if people gave up, they said, oh, this is too hard. Uh, and gold would know and say, oh, I'm going to go closer up to the ground and make it easier to find me. Bitcoin's doing that every couple of weeks. Uh, so the miners are uh, trying to find the next piece of the records. And, the, and as they are looking for it, they are bundling together all the new transactions that people want to send out around the world. And so the miners are um, updating the record, and the nodes are keeping track of it. They're keeping a record of it, uh, and they're making sure that everyone's not cheating. So that's kind of the three main pieces of Bitcoin, and the money at the center of it is what keeps everybody from trying to lie to each other and steal from each other. Uh, like I said, Bitcoin has a fixed uh, 
supply. It's it's being inflated at a rate that everyone knows ahead of time. This is part of one. This is one of the rules of Bitcoin that they all agree to follow. Um, and so you can see that chart there. The blue line is showing you the number of Bitcoin that exists. We are currently at the green line. Ninety percent of every Bitcoin that has ever that is ever going to exist currently exists. We have about a hundred years to go to get the remaining ten percent. Every four years, uh, you get half as many uh, as you did before. So you have this fixed, predictable schedule of how much there's going to be. You know that uh, in a hundred years, I'm always going to have this amount of Bitcoin out of a certain amount. So that's what Bitcoin is. Uh, why? Why should we care about Bitcoin? Um, the first thing is this issue of inflation. Um, in our world, uh, we call this fiat world, fiat economics, fiat money, um, central banks keep, they try to control uh, how much banks charge each other for lending to each other. They try to keep this number usually pretty low. They keep this, so when you hear about the Federal Reserve, the interest rate is this or the interest rate is that. What they're doing is they're monkeying around with creating money or destroying money so that banks will charge each other a certain amount uh, to lend to each other. Uh, when you keep uh, interest rates low, you are implicitly encouraging people to go out and spend their money, and you're encouraging banks to lend out their money because um, they want to find ways to make money because they can't make that much money lending it to each other. Uh, so they do this to keep, you know, and every other kind of interest rate that we deal with in our lives is downstream from this main interest rate at the central bank. So the mortgage rates, you know, right now mortgage rates are going up because the central bank has started to play around and get the interest rates to go up. They try to keep the rates low to get people to go out and spend their money. And then when people start spending their money too much uh, and things are going a little crazy, inflation starts going up, then they say, oh, no, we need to get people to stop spending money. And so they start playing around with getting rid of money so that the interest rates will go higher and then people will stop spending their money. So they're, they're kind of constantly playing with this. They've been doing this for about 100 years. This isn't the way the world has always worked. Um, however, um, governments... Uh, when they have been in charge of money, or anybody, it doesn't have to be a government, it could be anybody who has a lot of power, uh, whenever they are in charge of money, they quickly figure out that if I can play with money, and if I can make more of it before everyone else catches on, I can buy a lot of things uh, before they realize it. And my friends can buy a lot of things before they realize it. And so inflation is something that's always been around in our world. Um, I think, uh, and I'll try to show you, I think inflation is a form of fraud. Through, uh, It's a form of theft by defrauding people, uh, by telling them, hey, here's you know, what you think this is worth, but actually... Uh, you don't realize this yet, but me and my friends have made more of it, and uh, we can spend it first, and you can't. And so inflation is particularly harmful to the poor. It's particularly harmful to people that are not connected to those who are close to banks and close to those who are in charge of the money. It's particularly harmful to the developing world. Uh, we in America are sitting on top of the world's financial system. In, in a lot of ways, we have the luxury of sitting around pontificating about interesting things like inflation. A lot of us are worried right now about gas prices and things inflating. Uh, this is the daily life of a lot of people all over the world. And many of them are suffering the downstream consequences of the United States' own monetary policies because the entire world runs on U.S. dollars. It runs on U.S. debt. It depends on it. Lots and lots of countries in the world, uh, they tie their own currency to the dollar. And so if the U.S. government is making a lot more dollars, if the Federal Reserve is making a lot more dollars, uh, that hurts them a lot more than it hurts us. Uh, here's different ways that people who have been in charge of money have figured out over the years to play around with it and steal from people who don't realize what's going on. You can clip coins. You can shave off the edges of them. And this is why 
some of our coins still have these little ribs on them on the sides. That is a reminder that these coins used to be made out of a money that actually was worth anything. Uh, they're not anymore. But back in the day, they were made out of silver. And if you shaved off a tiny bit of the edges, no one would really notice. But if you did it long enough, you could collect enough shavings to melt it down and, and make new ones. So uh, clipping coins is one way you do it. Another way you do it is metal debasement. So you, you melt down your coins and you mix in you know, some cheap metal. Uh, and then you re-strike them. And they look the same. Um, but then you have more coins floating around. I'll show you a chart in a sec of how the Romans did this. And then finally, the way it works in our world is through uh, printing money. They don't, they're not literally printing money. This is done by pressing buttons on a computer. But the thing ends up being the same. Um, this, again, like I said, is not a new problem. Uh, here's how the Romans did it. That chart's a little fuzzy. But you guys know this, the denarius? You hear the story about Jesus has brought a denarius whose picture is on this. It's Tiberius Caesar. Yeah. Um, so that denarius, that's the main silver coin in the Roman Empire. You can see here, over 300 years, 400 years, they slowly, 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 until the end, they really went crazy. They got rid of all the silver out of it so that they would have more of it. You collect your taxes, you melt it down, you send out more of it. But first, of course, you make sure you spend it. Make sure your friends spend it before anybody else knows what's going on. By the time you get to the guy on the street selling his tacos, uh, he now has to raise his prices, or he has to make his tacos smaller so that he doesn't make his customers mad. Uh, the dollar has been doing the same thing. Uh, here's a couple of charts uh, looking at the same issue from two different directions. Uh, the first one on the left, uh, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. They are the bank of banks. They are the ones that play around with these interest rates, and they, they create money, and they get rid of money in order to affect it. Uh, here's what it looked like. $1 in 1913 when they started uh, compared to now what a dollar is worth, you know, kind of hovering around three or four cents. Uh, another way to look at it, the chart on the right, is um, starting in 1792. This is when the U.S. dollar was started. Uh, how much, uh, this was, think of $100 in 1792, and then how much money do you need to be able to buy the same stuff that $100 back then bought? So right now, you can see on the top right of the chart, you, know, you need about $3,000 today to buy the same thing that $100 would buy you in 1792. You can see there about two-thirds of the way through that chart, it's just kind of bumping along around $100. It didn't really change. You could save up your money, and you could know that in 50 years, I can still buy the same thing, or even less, with this money that I saved today. You do have a couple of bumps there. Uh, those are centered around wars. Governments typically print a lot of money because war is very expensive. Uh, fiat money makes it easy to make wars last a lot longer. Uh, because you can print a lot more money before anyone really realizes what's happening. But then you can see about halfway through the chart, the Federal Reserve is created, and then a couple other things happen that kind of detached the dollar from uh, anything valuable behind it. And then that last little line there, that's the early 70s. Uh, things went off to the races ever since then. Uh, this is a quote from an economist named Mises. One of the privileges of a rich man is that he can afford to be foolish much longer than a poor man. Here is uh, the U.S. monetary supply since I think of, this is like 1953. Anyone here born in 1953? Remember all the things you used to be able to buy with a dollar in 1953? Anyways, look at here's what's happened. This is the amount of money and the amount of dollars that have been created. Uh, look down that, that thick gray bar on the right, not all the way to the right. That's the financial crisis of 2008. Remember when everyone got really mad because they bailed out these banks and they told everyone else to take a hike? And we couldn't believe how much money they had printed to help these banks out. Uh, that tiny little blip there, that's how much money they created to give to those banks that we all got so mad about. OK, now look at this thin gray line on the far right. That's COVID. 
they completely opened up the fire hydrants on money. They said, we need a lot of dollars because they were really scared. And so they just sent money out like crazy. And they didn't, they didn't ask for it in taxes. They didn't go out and find gold. They just created it and they issued it. And if you were closer to the fire hydrant, you got more of it. If you weren't, too bad, so sad. You got to deal with it. Here's your stimulus check, deal with it. Uh, there's been a 40% jump since COVID began in the amount of dollars that exist. That's a lot of dollars. Um, here's a little blip on the bottom about my church. When I started at my church in 2016, after 15 years, our church had painstakingly saved $200,000 for a building someday, we hope and pray. Uh, we earned about 0.1% interest over the last six years on that. Uh, in today's dollars, it's worth about $164,000. Inflation has eaten $36,000 of our church's money. We've tried to be careful and good stewards by just sitting on it in cash. We didn't want to be spending our time as elders trying to manage investments. But uh, we've lost a lot of money just letting it sit there. Yeah, there's something. Uh, like I said, this is not just a U.S. problem. A lot of us are now kind of waking up to it. Uh, many of you were around in the 70s and the early 80s when this was kind of going on also. For some of us, like me, you haven't really been alive for this. Um, but again, it's in some ways, the, the financial system in the United States is not great, in my humble opinion, but it's a lot better than other places. Uh, the entire world is dealing with this all the time. Uh, here's the inflation outlook for the entire world. Venezuela, 500% inflation next year. Argentina, 51%. Turkey, terrible inflation right now, 60%. Sudan is on there. Zimbabwe. Uh, this is a horrible problem, and it, it's something, like I said, that hurts poor people the most. Uh, wealthy people can afford more to deal with the problems and the hassles of higher prices, and they have more savings to cushion themselves. If you're living at a subsistence level, inflation means you starve to death. Okay, here's something to scare everybody. Um, here is a chart of uh, stock indices from around the world. The blue one on the top is the American stock market. Woohoo, go America, we're beating everybody. This begins uh, right at the peak before the 2008 crash. So you can see there on the left, that's the 2008 financial crisis. You see that big dump. And then that really sharp line straight down towards the right, that's COVID. And then the stock market blasted off. They unleashed a ton of money into the financial system. And a lot of people ran out and they bought stocks and houses. So the prices of those things went up like crazy. And then starting at the end of last year, beginning of this year, it kind of all started turning over. This is up through uh, late May. It's gone down another 7% or so since then. Okay, so from 2008 at the peak until late May, the U.S. stock market went up 179%. That sounds pretty good, right? Uh, we look at our stock portfolios, and we think, oh, we're doing pretty good. I'm, I'm going to be able to retire okay. Okay, the chart I'm about to show you is the same exact chart, except in 2008 dollars. So taking into account the fact that they have printed a ton of money since then. So when you take that into account, you take into the fact that they have printed a lot of dollars since 2008, the return in the U.S. stock market goes from 179% to negative 3.2%. The numbers on paper are much higher. But when you compare it to how many more dollars are out there floating around, it's actually gone down a little bit. Bitcoin has a predictable supply. It's open to anybody. Uh, it's totally voluntary. It's totally peaceful. Nobody gets forced to be in it. Nobody gets forced out of it. Uh, it's almost impossible to confiscate. It's very easy to lose. If you like forget your password, then there's nothing that can be done, and that's kind of scary. Uh, but nobody can take it from you. Um, 
again, qualifications aside, I realize Jesus says, you know, store up your treasures in heaven. That's the only place, amen and amen, the only place that real wealth is going to last. But for all intents and purposes, uh, when they figure out how to break into Bitcoin and steal Bitcoin, they will also have already figured out how to break into nuclear launch codes and all those kinds of things. It is at the same level of security. Uh, Bitcoin can be brought anywhere. It can be sent anywhere. You can take it across any border by memorizing 12 words. Uh, the reason that gold, in my humble opinion, did not work or did not keep working as money is because it's so expensive to move around, it's so hard to move around, uh, that they eventually had to start trusting uh, institutions to hang on to it for them. And so when they had to do that, you then have this issue of, well, how do you know if they're telling the truth about how much is in there? Uh, they say, well, no, just, just trust us. It's, it's all in there. Well, you don't, you don't really know that. They're not going to let you in to look at it. Uh, anybody can check and see what's happening on Bitcoin at any time. You just buy one of these cheap computers, 200 bucks, and then you can see anything that's ever happened in the Bitcoin world. Uh, I think it's the hardest money ever. Uh, you can't make more of it. You can't cheat it. Even gold, uh, all you have to do is just dig deeper. Uh, something like the, the, the gold that we currently have in the world that we've mined out of the ground is only like 2% of all the gold that's in the crust of the earth. Uh, all you have to do is just dig deeper if you, and then going through the hassle of doing so. Uh, here's another reason why I think Bitcoin is really important. This issue of confiscations. We talked about inflation, but also confiscation. Uh, our banking system, the entire banking system of the world, is centralized. There's, there are people, and again, this, it's, it kind of has to be. It's understandable. Uh, they have to kind of keep a, a central record of everything that's happened. It's not distributed. It's not decentralized. We don't all get to keep our own record of where all the dollars are in the world. Any transaction, any account can be blocked. Anything can be reversed. Bitcoin is decentralized. It's trustless. You don't have to trust anybody. It's, it's trustworthy, but you, can't, you don't have to trust anybody else, and you can't be blocked out of it. Um, lots of people in recent history have um, managed to hang on to their wealth because they had some money in Bitcoin instead of uh, people blocking them out of their, their banking system in their own country's currencies. Uh, this happened a few years ago in Nigeria during protests against police brutality. Uh, the government blocked a bunch of the protesters out of their banks. They said, you can't have your money anymore. We don't like you. Uh, in Russia, uh, they have blocked the assets and taken the assets of political opposition parties. Uh, Ukraine actually did the same thing this week with their main opposition party. Uh, in China, a lot of us have heard about their social credit system. You can be blocked out uh, from spending money if they don't like you. In Afghanistan, there, I was just reading a story about a group of women who were uh, working for Bitcoin and were able to take the Bitcoin out of the country with them because they were often blocked from owning any money at all just because they were women. Um, and then finally, places like Canada, you can be blocked out of the financial system for honking. Um, this is a little chart of the back to this issue of saleability, the, the ease with which you can uh, sell something or exchange something. Remember, money is the most saleable thing around, usually unless you're being forced to use something else. Uh, the dollar has been really good at saleability through space. That means it's really easy to transfer around the world. I can send dollars all over the place, you know, paying, paying a relatively small fee and waiting a couple days. You can send money just about anywhere. It's really easy. This is a lot of why uh, governments moved away from gold, because their government money system was easy to transfer. It's easy to move around. Uh, gold was not good at moving through space, but it was really good at moving through time. If you saved up in gold, you knew that you were going to be able to buy more or less the same thing or even more uh, later on down the road. So dollars have been really bad at that. Dollars have lost lots of value over time. 
uh, gold was good at hanging on to its value over time, even though it was really bad at moving around in space. Uh, this is the PCA. This is General Assembly. So let's talk about the Bible a little bit. Um, here are some verses about the importance of saving. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Uh, Proverbs 27 says, you should pay attention to your stuff. Keep an eye on what's going on with it because it will uh, disappear on you if you don't. There's a, there's a Christian imperative to, and I'll, I'll say this, our longer, larger catechism talks about the, the imperative to maintain your other people's but also your own wealth, to keep an eye on it, to keep it from disappearing on you. Um, one of the main tenets of modern economic theory is that saving is bad and consumption is good. And so we have to do what we can to get people to spend their money. And so this is where you get totally crazy things like negative interest rates. We haven't quite gotten there in the U.S., but uh, this has been going on in Europe for years now, uh, where they so want people to be outspending their money that they will actually charge you to keep money at the bank instead of paying you interest. Um, high inflation, uh, there's, there's a rationale behind it. There's a reason they're inflating the money, and it's with good intentions. They want people to go out and to spend. They don't want it to go down. They're afraid that if people save up their money, then, then the economy will slow down. Uh, the Bible uh, teaches us that saving is a good thing. It's a wise thing. And, you know, it shouldn't be the focus of our lives, but it's really important. We should be saving for the future, and we should have questions, serious questions, about consuming and living for the present. Uh, here's that economist Mises again. Inflation encourages a mentality of immediate gratification that's plainly at variance with the discipline and eternal perspective required to exercise principles of biblical stewardship. He was Jewish. Such as long-term investment for the benefit of future generations. Uh, economic injustice, a huge theme all over the Bible, especially the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we have this issue of theft. So in Judges, you repeatedly have these regimes that are hanging around that have taken over, and they said, we're in charge now. Uh, we're going to take your money, and we're going to take your crops, uh, cough it up. And so then you get guys like Gideon, uh, who are you know, threshing his grain in a pit in the ground so that the Midianites don't realize what he's doing, and he can hang on to more of his grain. Uh, 1 Kings 21, King Ahab decides he wants Naboth's vineyard, uh, exercises a little bit of eminent domain. He steals it from him. Micah 2.2, they covet fields, they seize them, and houses, they take them away, they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. There's something particularly egregious about robbing the poor, uh, but robbing people that have an inheritance, robbing people that have a house, is also sinful. And the Bible uh, does not say, well, it's okay, as long as they're relatively affluent. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, of course, you have Samuel warning the people of Israel, we really want a king, we really want a king, and he keeps saying, he's going to take, 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 that's all he's going to do. You really want this king? Yeah, we really want him. Are you sure that we want him? He's going to take 10% of your stuff. You're going to be his slaves, basically. Yeah, we really want a king. Uh, human kings tend toward taking. Uh, another form of economic injustice in the Bible, fraud. Uh, don't oppress your neighbor or rob him. Don't hang on to the wages that you've promised to somebody and say, oh, never mind, I'll pay you this later. Uh, people prefer things now more than they prefer them in the future. And so if they think they're going to get it now, but you tell them actually you can have this later, that is a form of stealing from them. James talks about it. Jesus nails the scribes for doing it to the widows. They're devouring widows' houses. Lots of good intentions. Lots of promises about, oh, here's what we can do to help you. But actually they're bent on taking from these poor people. Uh, the Bible on inflation, uh, perhaps a little bit of a stretch. You can disagree with me if you want. Remember the story in Exodus 5 where Pharaoh gets mad at the Israelite slaves and he says, well, here about this. You can make the same amount of bricks, but you have to go get your own straw. And so it's kind of a backwards kind of inflation. He's saying you have to do more work to get the same output. And if they do less work, 
or if they do you know, the same work to get less output, then he says, then I'm going to beat you. And so it's a, it's a roundabout kind of inflation there. Uh, you also have this whole issue all through the Bible of false weights and scales, where you think you're getting one thing, uh, but you're actually getting another. And remember, in the ancient world, money had to be weighed out. Uh, the, the names for, for money, for units of money in the Bible, are typically also used as weights. Uh, so things like a shekel or a talent, those function as you know, a unit of heaviness and weight, but also of money. And so God says, I hate it when people are selling something and they're cheating. They've got their thumb on the scale and so that they're taking uh, from you when you don't realize it. Uh, shows up all over the, the prophets. Um, here's our larger catechism. has a lot of things to say about all this kind of stuff. Uh, what is the sixth commandment? Don't murder. What does it forbid? Uh, it forbids neglecting or withholding the lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life. It forbids oppression forbids whatever leads to the destruction of the life of any. Very interestingly, when they uh, give proof texts for that phrase there about destroying someone's life, it cites one of these Old Testament laws about accidentally ruining somebody's property. Uh, and so the, the Bible, of course, places a much higher premium on humans and their lives than it does on their property, but it has a very high regard for their stuff. It doesn't say, oh, who cares? It's just property. Don't you have insurance on that or something? Uh, no, actually, uh, when you ruin someone's stuff, even if you do it accidentally, there's a sense in which you're destroying their life. Uh, because people's property, people's money, uh, is, is, a, is an expression and a concentration of their work and of their diligence. Um, you have also, too, the Eighth Commandment, of course, don't steal. Larger catechism, what does it require? Truth and faithfulness and justice and contracts, all these things. Uh, a provident care, this is, I mentioned this before, a provident care to study, to keep these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenance of our nature. There is a sense in which we should be mindful about not losing our stuff, not allowing it to be taken away from us. Uh, we're supposed to avoid suretyship. This is an old-timey word. It means guaranteeing other people's loans. The Bible says not necessarily that you can never do it, but you've got to be really careful about it, especially when you don't know who this person is. Uh, it's, you could argue that our entire financial system is based on suretyship. Um, our money is really uh, credit. It's not actually something of value. It's U.S. debt. The, re the way the Federal Reserve creates money is actually by creating debt, is by you know, promising people, I'll pay you later. And so it's kind of by force putting that on you and also on the rest of the world. Most of uh, the world's trade is done in dollars, even though the U.S. is not one of the parties of it. They're trading in U.S. debt, and your children and grandchildren are, uh, without their consent, being made uh, the uh, surety ship of it. Uh, keep going. What does it forbid? Eighth commandment. Theft, robbery, of course. Receiving anything that's stolen. Fraudulent dealing. False weights and measures. That shows up again. Removing landmarks. Uh, you know, the, the G.K. Chesterton quote, don't move a landmark before you really understand why it was there. Uh, we've been playing around with money for a long time, uh, kind of shrugging our shoulders at the way they used to do it and saying, well, who cares? We're smart now. We can figure it out. We can do something better. The party will never end. This time it's different. Uh, we, we're not going to run the entire thing into the ground. Well, Maybe not, but uh, probably not. Um, withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves, prodigality, you know, just spending lavishly. Um, so anyways, that's the larger catechism. Here's some thoughts, some random thoughts on Bitcoin in terms of ministry and mission. Uh, this amazing parable from Jesus I had at the beginning, Luke 16, about the dishonest steward, dishonest manager. It's a really bizarre parable in so many ways. You have this kind of crooked uh, accountant, and Jesus says, wow, you 
you know, you disciples, you guys are kind of dumb with your money. You should be more like that guy. Uh, you should use your money to make friends for yourself uh, so that one day you can have them welcome you into eternal dwellings in heaven. And so Jesus is not saying you should go out and rob your bosses. But, you know, I think sometimes we can be a little more spiritual than Jesus and we think, oh, no, no. We don't need to think about this stuff. You know, we're doing the work of the church. Uh, we're just Christians. We just care about heaven. You know, Jesus, so many of his parables are about people in business and people working with money and people working with capital. Uh, I think we sometimes need to be careful. We're not trying to be more spiritual than he is. Um, thinking about our people, um, I think, again, I could be wrong. You can disagree with me, and that's totally fine. Um, this cycle has happened over and over and over and over again in history where um, people with a lot of power play around with money, uh, and it does not ever end well. Uh, in the great clash between people with a lot of power and mathematics, mathematics has always won. Mathematics comes from God. Um, they cannot get away with this forever. I mean, we're seeing this right now. They're, they've just barely started raising the interest rates, the Federal Reserve, and everyone's losing their minds. The stock market's going crazy. It's so unstable. They, they, it's kind of like a forest fire where if you... Um, if you if you, because you want to prevent uh, you know, small fires, you don't let them ever happen. You say, well, no, no, we don't want fires. We don't want bad things to happen. And so we're just going to kind of let all the underbrush grow. And isn't this great? We don't have any fires anymore. What you're really doing is you're setting yourself up for a much worse fire down the road. Um, and so by them constantly rushing in and dumping money in to try to rescue banks and rescue people and rescue systems, they're kicking the can down the road endlessly. And this will not end well. There's great suffering coming. Uh, we should care about this for our own sakes, for our children's sake, for the sake of our churches and our congregation, and for our neighbors. Uh, like I said, the Sixth and the Eighth Commandments, there is a sense in which uh, we should try to help other people preserve uh, their stuff. That's what I'm doing right now, I think. Uh, and we should even do it for ourselves. There's also this whole issue of stewardship. Uh, like I told you with my church, is there a point at which we're being bad stewards by just sitting on top of U.S. dollars that are being eaten away uh, you know, they're, they're telling you it's 8% a year right now. It's probably more. Um, again, I'm not saying we should go out gambling our money, but this is why people go out and do crazy things like buy, you know, pictures of monkeys and, you know, go crazy trading GameStop because they're running around looking for ways to beat inflation. Inflation is so high that you can't just save money anymore. You have to run around. Everyone has to be an investor. And so people are risking a lot by doing that. Um, and so I think there is a sense in which we should think about, well, what does it mean to be a good steward? Is it, is it good stewardship just to sit on top of cash all the time? Um, thinking about mercy, like we've said, inflation harms the poor and the weak and the disconnected the most. Um, we need to be thinking about them and trying to help them. Um, it also, this, this system of inflation where I know that my money is going to be worth a lot less tomorrow than it is today, that automatically incentivizes you to live for right now. It lives for seeking pleasure right now, uh, and there's all kinds of problems that come along with that. You know, we all really like this book, When Helping Hurts, that came from some PCA guys. One of their big things is, if you really want to help the poor, you're helping them learn how to support themselves and their families to rebuild their relationships and their lives. Uh, a financial system where your money and your wealth are evaporating every day is not a system that encourages people to think very long into the future. Uh, thinking in terms of missions, um, Bitcoin is something that you don't need anybody's permission to send it around the world. Uh, you don't need anybody's permission to take it anywhere in the world. You could take it to the moon if you want to. Um, nobody can take it. It's, it's very hard to steal. Uh, there's a lot of possibilities here. There's a lot of really neat things being done around the world uh, and through Christian ministries trying to help Christians who are being persecuted uh, to be able to hang on to their wealth and their possessions instead of getting blocked out 
of their financial systems. A lot of cool things here. And again, Bitcoin's not the only way to do this. Uh, but you know, some really cool things here in terms of being able to send money to people on the field back and forth. Um, in terms of evangelism, so I, I'm a pastor in Austin. Austin's a very big tech city. Um, there's a lot of Bitcoin people there, a lot of kind of crypto, high-tech companies. I have found myself in this very strange little missions field there where I've started hanging around with Bitcoin people. And it's just been the most wonderful, fun little thing. Uh, one of the best things I've done in ministry. I've had the best evangelistic conversations with these guys that I've had in years. And I don't quite know what it is, but there's a lot of Christians uh, interested in Bitcoin. And a lot of the people who are not Christians are very interested in spiritual things in a way that I haven't seen in a long time with people my age and younger. Uh, they tend to be uh, starting to ask these questions about what money is and the kinds of questions that Bitcoin raises for people. Um, they tend to get very interested in what's true and what's real. Uh, how do people used to do things? Why are things so messed up now? Why are we all living for now? Why are we all consuming like crazy? They're very interested in history. They're very interested in the future because they're starting to think more about the future because they know that this thing is going to last into the future instead of disappearing while they're standing on top of it. Um, and so it's just, with that, there's a lot of really bizarre, weird kind of idolatry. There's a lot of people that basically treat Bitcoin like it's God. And so don't do that. Be careful about that. Um, but it's just this, it's a really neat community. And so if you have any of these people around, um, there's, you know, there's a handful of cities where this is a bigger deal than others. Uh, and you probably have younger people in your church, or at least people they know, who are pretty deep uh, down the rabbit hole on some of this stuff. I've just found it's a wonderful field for ministry uh, and for evangelism and just talking to people who are asking very serious, good questions about life. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.